This week, we're actually going to take a step away from the lectionary to look at one of the stories that doesn't make its way into that assigned uh, lectionary uh, scriptures. It comes from the book of Esther, which is a book about a king named Xerxes who holds a nationwide beauty contest to find a new queen. A beautiful young woman, Jewish woman named Esther, wins the contest, you know, things start to spiral and she saves her people. It's a great story about a community acting in faith when God seems absent. And some of us might know this story, it might be familiar, but I wonder if we know the first chapter of the story. Specifically, do we know why the king is searching for a queen in the first place? It's a part of the story we rarely tell, so today we're going to take a look at Esther chapter 1. But before we do, will you please pray with me? God of love and God of life, we give thanks for your spirit that fills our hearts and saturates our world. And we pray that through that spirit, we will hear your word for us today. Amen. Our scripture comes from Esther 1, 1 through 12. This is what happened back when Xerxes lived, the very Xerxes who ruled from India to Kush, 127 provinces in all. In the third year of his rule, he hosted a feast for all his officials and courtiers. He showed off the awesome riches of his kingdom and beautiful treasures as mirrors of how very great he was. The event lasted a long time, six whole months to be exact. After that, the king held a seven-day feast for everyone in the fortified part of Susa. Whether they were important people in the town or not, they all met in the walled garden of the royal palace. White linen curtains and purple hangings were held up by shining white and red-purple ropes tied to silver rings and marble posts. Gold and silver couches sat on a mosaic floor made of gleaming purple, crystal, marble, and mother of pearl. They served the drinks in cups made of gold, and each cup was different. The king made sure there was plenty of royal wine. The rule about the drinks was no limits. The king had ordered everyone serving wine in the palace to offer as much as each guest wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti held a feast for women in King Xerxes' palace. On the seventh day, when wine had put the king in high spirits, he gave an order to the seven eunuchs who served King Xerxes personally. They were to bring Queen Vashti before him wearing the royal crown. She was gorgeous, and he wanted to show off her beauty both to the general public and to his important guests. But Queen Vashti refused to come as the king had ordered through the eunuchs. This is the word of the Lord. So let's start with a quick recap. Queen Vashti is married to King Xerxes, whose lands stretch from India to Ethiopia to Greek to Kazakhstan. He's kind of a big deal and maybe a little insecure. 
I mean, apparently being the most powerful ruler in the world is not an adequate display of his greatness. So Xerxes throws himself a six-month-long party to impress his friends. There's an open bar, so everyone gets super drunk. And in the midst of his drunkenness, Xerxes has the brilliant idea to have his wife come and dance in front of his friends. So Xerxes sends for Queen Vashti and tells her to come and dance for the crowd. But Vashti says no. She refuses to be paraded around as an object of sexual desire. As the story continues, this enrages the king who gathers his advisors together to decide what in the world to do. The, the men are freaking out because, according to verse 17, the women in the kingdom will hear about this and they will refuse to respect their husbands. They will say, if Queen Vashti doesn't obey her husband, why should we? You know, so fearing the imminent end of civilization, the men come up with a plan. Banish Vashti and make a law that she can never see Xerxes again. This sounds like a, a great plan because as, as Xerxes' advisors so, so deftly explain, when the women in your great kingdom hear about this new law, they'll respect their husbands, no matter if they are rich or poor. And as we all know, it worked. From this point forward in history, we, we never hear from disrespectful women again. So yeah, clearly I'm joking. It's an attempt to, to release a little bit of the tension that builds throughout this story because this story probably makes us uncomfortable. A after all, Vashti's, her, her, her very person is defined by her beauty. Her name in Persian literally means beautiful. And that's not just a name, it's an identity, a job. She's told to be sexual and submissive and entertaining. And when she refuses, she's banished, never to be heard from again. Not in the Bible, not in the lectionary, not in the church. Really, the only time that Vashti is mentioned is, is to set up the real hero of the story, Esther. The, the vast majority of, of rabbinical teaching and Christian interpretation only mentions Vashti to to criticize her compared to Esther. And sometimes that, that criticism is because the, the interpreter or the commentator believes that, well, Xerxes was right to banish Vashti, Vashti. That women's role is to be sexual and seductive, more like Esther who knew her place, you know, in a beauty pageant. Now, other commentators completely reject this objectification of women, but still consider Vashti's refusal to be maybe unenlightened or ineffective compared to Esther. Because Vashti's protest doesn't seem to work. She's banished, and the king does not learn to respect women. 
Xerxes goes the other way and makes a new law that reinforces the oppression of women. And then he holds a beauty contest to find a new queen. And, and all along, Vashti's being compared to Esther, who's, who's sort of like a, a champion of third wave, fe, third wave feminism. She's an, an immigrant, an ethnic minority, who uses the only power she's given to quietly subvert the system that oppresses her. Esther is cunning and coy, using her sexuality to win Xerxes' favor and protect her people. Esther is sort of like the, the Old Testament version of Dolly Parton, right? Yeah. While Vashti might just look like a wealthy woman with enough privilege to walk away from the fight. And, and, and I'll be honest, it's easy for me to prefer Esther over Vashti, in part because Esther reminds me of my mom. I mean, my mom didn't save the Jewish people, but when she was young, she competed in beauty pageants because it was one of the few opportunities to use her skill as a musician to receive scholarships, to attend community college so she could keep studying music. And I'm probably a little bit partial to Esther because of patriarchy, right? We're conditioned to distrust women who don't play by the rules. Whether we are conscious of it, whether we're aware of it or not, patriarchy teaches us to be more comfortable with Esther. But all this analysis of Vashti versus Esther, it focuses entirely on how Vashti behaves, not who Vashti is and what she believes. We, we don't stop to ask, what made her do it? Why didn't she just dance? What was deep inside her that inspired her to say no to the most powerful man in the world? And, and we don't know. We don't know what motivated Vashti. But I think we can, we can safely say that Vashti didn't base her decision on the approval of her community. She didn't analyze the risks and rewards and consequences of saying no to the king. This was not a process of thoughtful evaluation to determine the most reasonable outcome. No, Vashti pursued what she knew was right and true for her. Somewhere deep inside herself, she found true north, and she followed her truth. And we, I mean, this is all we hear about Vashti. We know so little about her that we can, we can only speculate about her interior life. But, but we know our own interior life. We know the image of God that's imprinted on our soul. And that's... That's an image that calls out from within us that says, you are so much more than an object of desire to be paraded around and stared at. It, it seems that that image of God called out from deep inside Vashti and inspired her to resist the king 
And that's the part of this story that I want to learn from. Because it, it, that's, that's such a hard voice to trust. Especially when, when the world around us tells us to just do what everyone expects. Life will be easier that way. We're, we're trained to understand ourselves and our worth based on how we're received by others. We, we observe how people react and respond to our, our words, our actions, and our choices, and, and from that, we learn who we're supposed to be. I mean, just for example, like when we get dressed in the morning and, and we look at ourselves, do we think, what will people think of this outfit? Or do we ask, is this me? Do I love this? If we meet someone new, do we leave the, the interaction thinking, I hope they liked me? Or do we think, I hope I was true to the person God made me to be? And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad for wanting to be accepted by others. That's human. It's, it's a key part of how we survive communal society. We, we all see ourselves through the eyes of others. But the question is, whose eyes do we see ourselves through? That last line was confusing and important. So I'm going to say it again, and we'll put it up here, and then I'm going to try to explain it. We see ourselves through the eyes of others. The question is, whose eyes do we see ourselves through? And that question, like, I know the right answer. We're supposed to see ourselves through God's eyes, not the eyes of the world. That, that's sort of a, a, a key part of the theology that I that I studied and find really important, but I didn't understand the answer that well. At least not, I, I should say, I understood it a lot better after the last week. I was, I was in a discussion about the, the relationship between reputation and shame. And, and I, at one point, I was, just, I was trying to explain to someone else how a bad reputation causes us shame, like... I basically said that when, when we've done something wrong and everyone else knows that we've done it and, and our mistakes end up shaping the way that others see us, that ends up causing us to feel shame. And as I said this, our friend James jumped in and said, well, I don't think a bad reputation can ever be accurate. And that felt like just about the silliest thing I'd ever heard. Um, because I've known a few people whose bad reputations seemed accurate. But as he continued, he explained that, that one's reputation isn't so much about the person, but about the role our community needs us to play, particularly around shame. When someone has a shameful reputation, it's because the group needs someone to shame. For us to feel like we are on the inside of a group, someone else has to be on the outside of the group. We, we and, and sure, people make bad choices. They do bad things. But it's the community that decides that certain choices should cause people to carry around the weight of shame. 
And in that sense, shame isn't individual, it's communal. The community decides that the things we've done define who we are. And since we all sort of understand ourselves through the eyes of others, through how others respond to us, how our community sees us is how we'll see ourselves. Unless we see ourselves through the eyes of someone else. Someone who, who sees us as beloved, no matter what we've done. Someone who delights in us every moment of our lives. Someone who's actually willing to step into the role of, of the shamed one, the cast out, the crucified. Someone who responded to his community's rejection with love and forgiveness. And I'm, and I'm talking about Jesus here and how he endured the cross by understanding himself through the eyes, through the loving eyes of God, rather than the crowd who was shouting, crucify him. Jesus saw himself the way God saw him, as beloved and delightful. And, and seeing ourselves the way that God sees us can be an antidote to our shame but one that's really hard to access. So hard that, that we need the church to be a community that sees us the way God sees us. A community where the shame we feel is held tenderly by others who refuse to cast us out. We need that community because without it, that it, it just feels like such a tall order. Like, who has the inner resolve to, to, and, the, and the spiritual connection to look to God rather than looking at their entire community that's judging them? I mean, Jesus did that. And Vashti did too. At least it seems that way. We don't, we don't know what was going on inside Vashti but she acted as someone who saw herself as God's beloved. She followed what was right and true, even when it meant that she would take on the shame of her community. She refused to be reduced to an object of desire, so she was cast out and made into a cautionary tale. And, and honestly, we don't know what happened to Bashti. We don't know the life that she lived. But we can give her story new life today. We can remember her name. We, we can tell the story of how she would not come when she was called because she only danced when she pleased. We can see her as beautiful and beloved. We can see ourselves as beautiful.